Philippians chapter 2, let's read from verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So last week we've considered what this true Christmas spirit looks like. And when I say spirit, I mean a way of thinking, a mindset, an attitude. And that attitude is summarized in verses 3 to 4. That is the attitude we should have. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind, or let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Christians are to put off selfish pride and to put on humble service towards their fellow brothers and sisters, especially those God has placed us within the community of faith, within the church. But what is amazing about this text is to what Paul points as the supreme example for Christians to follow. So he takes this attitude and says, and look to Jesus. Jesus is the person that has exemplified this attitude perfectly. He says, look at Christ, look at his incarnation. Look at this massive self-emptying, self-denying, self-sacrificing of Christ in becoming a baby and dying on the cross. And now look at where he is. He is exalted at the highest place, far above the heavens, seated at the right hand. And one day, every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. So dear Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, then follow his example. Follow his example. Humble yourself. Adopt the same mindset of your happiness at my expense. Give up your life in this world and find it in the life to come that will last forever and ever. That is how to make your life count. Don't pursue your little kingdom, your little dreams, your little self-centered goals, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So this afternoon, we're going to zoom in to verses 5 to 11 and consider that massive implication of worshiping Christ in his example as we think and live like him. So remember last week, just a reminder of the last week's outline as well. We looked last week at the reminder of verse 1, which is the blessings we have in Christ. And then number two, the command, what we, you and I should be doing. And now number three, the example. Paul shows us the example. And specifically, Paul shows us that Christ is our example in two ways. First, he is our example in his humiliation, but then also in his exaltation. And that is meant to encourage us to also lay down our lives like he has laid down his. So let's first consider Christ's example in his humiliation. Look at verse 5. It says, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, personally, I do not like the ESV translation here. It sounds like all believers already possess this mindset by virtue of their union with Christ. They say this is already part of your uh, mindset in Christ. However, I think the King James here is better when it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Do you see the difference? So it's not something we already possess. It's rather something that's in Jesus. It was a specific way of thinking in him that now must dwell in us. So by the Holy Spirit is saying, swap your mind, your natural way of thinking with the mindset or the way of thinking that Jesus had. Swap your selfish, me-centered, I deserve kind of thinking for the mind of Christ. That was God, you first, others second, me third. Even if that leads to death, that is a life well lived. Or to put it another way, our natural mindsets are often focused on taking or receiving. That's our natural bent. We want to see what we can get out of relationships, out of things, out of, we want to receive. While Christ's mindset was more focused on how to give, how to serve for God's glory and others' good. And beloved, that's not a small change. That's not, that's not a something small to swap. This is the transformation from the natural narcissist in all of us that thinks so highly of ourselves for the Christ-likeness, which can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is something that must radically be changed within us. So verse 5, you must see verse 5 as the heading of the rest of this verse. It says, whatever you are going to read right now, look for the mind of Christ. Look, try to understand as we read the rest of this passage, what was going on in the mindset of Jesus? And copy that. Think the same way. So how did Christ think? What is the mind of Christ like? What does it look like? It looks like Christmas. Okay. God became a man. That's the mindset. Okay. Look at verse 6 and 7. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Notice his nature. He was in the form of of God. The phrase means in sharing his exact nature, his exact attributes and essence. Simply put, the Son is God, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity. Now, the, Trini the, the doctrine of the Trinity is a foundational teaching of Christianity. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this basic teaching of the Trinity can be summed up like this. We believe in one eternal God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is not a contradiction. There is only one what, and there are three who's. So, one way to explain it is there's a difference between a what and a who. So, if I take this music stand... And I say, this is one what? This is a music stand. But there's not a who inside this music. I don't ask the music, how are you doing today? Why not? That would be crazy because there's not a person inside of this one what? Now, when we come to human beings, we are one what and one who? One human being who possess a person, a personality. But God happens to be one what with three who's. 
one God, one essence with three co-eternal, co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the reason why we struggle to perhaps understand that is we've never come across a being like this. You've never walked down the street and met one what with three who's. <laughs> that, that has never come across. That's why all the illustrations of the Trinity really falls flat. The more we try to illustrate it, the more we realize, okay, no, that breaks down, that breaks down. It's, it's really incomprehensible, indescribable. But here's the point. The Son was and is fully and equally God. The second who shares the same what with the Father and the Spirit. Forever and ever, he is worthy of our worship, our submission, and our adoration. And yet, what does the verse say in verse 6? He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, which means he did not consider himself, although he was fully equal to God, he did not think or act as if he was equal with God. That's what it means. He did not count, consider himself equal with God. He, that, because that was something to be grasped. That was something to be hold onto for your own advantage. And yet he didn't. And that's what Paul means when he says in verse 3, that's the same word count. So as Jesus did not count equality, verse 3 says, we should count others more significant than ourselves. The same Greek word. So we should imitate Christ. You and I are equal. We are all created in the image of God. So as human beings, we are equal, but we should not count ourselves equal with one another. We should count one another more important. In other words, not we should think and behave in the way as if your needs are more important than mine. And we should gladly give up that, our position of honor, our position of authority to serve others. But we do something else. We don't just count ourselves equal with others. We are striving for superiority with, from others. So we're not just content to be equal. We want to be superior than other people. And that's exactly what made the devil's sin so horrible. He didn't just want equality with God. He wanted superiority over God. He wanted God to bow down to him. We are fighting to become better than other people. We want, we are envious, jealous, we're we are trying to see and think that we are better. So we're not, we're not just on the equal level. We want the, the one step above. But that is not the mind of Christ. That's not how he thought. That's not his attitude. He really was in the highest position imaginable. And yet he did not cling to that. He did not hold on to that. Instead, he did verse 7. But he emptied himself. Now here you and I need to tread carefully. We are trading on holy ground. <laughs> this is a fine line between heresy and biblical teaching here. What does this mean when it says he's emptied himself? Now, the phrase literally does mean that. Like a cup of water you would pour out and the content of it is emptied. That's what I mean. Christ emptied himself. So naturally, it might, you might think he emptied himself of his godness. That would be a wrong understanding. The wrong way to understand this teaching which is called the kenosis theory, because that's where the Greek word empty means comes from the Greek word kenos, keno. So this is one of the wrong ways that Jesus emptied himself of his deity, that he emptied himself of his godness. In other words, when he became a man, he was only a man. It wasn't, he wasn't the perfect God-man. He truly did leave his deity behind. Now, re the reason why that is such a dangerous teaching and how practical that becomes is 
you will, some of you might know in some, some charismatic circles, not all charismatic circles, this is important for the understanding for signs and wonders and miracles to be able to be done by believers. So they say Jesus was not doing his miracles as God. He was doing his miracles, you know, walking on water, healing the sick, casting out demons, multiplying the bread as an ordinary, perfect man in right relationship with God. Independence on the Holy Spirit. And they base it on this verse that says he emptied himself. So, and here's how the connection now works. So in other words, since he was a perfect man and he could do those things, what if we also trust in the Father and rely, we will do the same miracles and greater. We too will be able to do exactly the same things and even greater because didn't Jesus even say in John 14, 12, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. You see, Jesus said we're going to do greater works, greater miracles. You see why, why this is an important verse not to get wrong. Okay? It's important to, to get this verse right. So first, this is not what this text means and that's not what John 14, 12 means. Okay? So I first want to correct this one and then I'll help you understand what that verse means. So the easiest way to understand what this emptying means is by reading the rest of the verse. You know, isn't that how, how many false teaching is debunked? Reading the Bible. It's as easy as that. The rest of the verse explains to us what this means. Look at verse 7. He emptied himself in what way? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he didn't lose anything. He added to himself. He emptied himself by leaving his position of glory, his authority, his honor, and became a baby. The very act of becoming a man was empty. It was a humiliation. It was coming down, stepping off the throne of glory, becoming a weak and frail human being. Or to say it like this, to remember what we said about the Trinity, this one of the who's took a second what? So now the son is one who, one person with two what's. He has, he's fully God, he has a full God nature and as well as a full human nature. 100% human, not 80% mankind with a 20% God brain. You know, no, it's 100% man, 100% God. Not mixed, not muddled, but united in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who, two what's. That's who the Lord Jesus is. So Christ did not empty himself of his deity. If he did, God cannot change. He cannot stop being God. That's one of the attributes of God. He is eternal, right? He always remained truly God, even as a baby. That's part of the wonder. That's part of the wonder of the incarnation. And that's why when you read John 14, 12, you should not think greater in power. So when Jesus says you will do greater works than I do, don't think greater miracles, greater powerful miracles, rather greater in extent, greater in extent. Believers will do greater works because Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus did not go to the ends of the earth, but we will. We, go, we are in South Africa. We are going to all across the world. It's greater in extent. And believers also lives longer. Jesus was ministering for three years. We live 
we minister perhaps for 20, 30, 40, a greater in extent, not greater in power. So that's what that verse means. And in the context of helping people to believe in the Father, that is the kind of works we ought to be doing. And that's the point of that verse. So what makes this emptying so amazing is what form this king took. So remember, he is a king, equal with God, and, but he didn't take the form of a king. What does the verse say? It says he took the form of a servant. Greek word, doulos, a slave. A slave. He came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to wash the feet of disciples. He took off the crown of gold and put on the crown of thorns. That's what he did. That's how, that's that humble position. That mere fact of becoming a man in the first place, as the rest of the verse say, being born in the likeness of men. Now that's what this emptying means. Now that lowly position that Jesus took, the distance he had to travel was an infinite distance. Imagine the, John Flavel uses this illustration, imagine the most beautiful, glorious angel you can imagine. Imagine him and that angel, beautiful in glory, and that angel becoming a worm in the mud. <laughs> so consider that distance of that lowering from a, a glorious angel to the lowliest worm. And yet, that distance will not be as great a distance between God and man. Because the distance between an angel and a worm is still the distance between one creature and another creature. One finite being and another finite being. It's a measurable distance. But who can measure the distance between God and man? The eternal with the finite. An infinite being with an finite being. That distance cannot be measured. Jesus descended and literally an infinite low to become a man. And that's what he did. That's the humiliation that Christ had. It was an infinite humiliation. But it doesn't stop there. It goes, he, go, he went further. Look at verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Notice the same word there, being found in human form. So again, the same Greek word used in verse 6. He was in the form of God, and now he's in the form of man. Again, the same, this is the, the consistent teaching of the Bible. Jesus was fully, truly man. And as a man, he humbled himself by submitting himself to his father in complete obedience. And that was ultimate humility because he followed his father's will even to the point of death. His father asked him to die. And then Jesus submitted in the garden when he said, not my will, but your will be done. Imagine that complete trust in, in his father, in God. That if he asks him to die, he says, it's better to obey than to live. Imagine that attitude, like that trust in God. God, even if this costs me my life, I will rather obey you and trust you than disobey you and remain alive. Again, that's the attitude that should be in us. Father, even if you lead me to the grave, I will follow. For I trust you will raise me from the grave. I trust that you will lead me through the paths of, you will show me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. 
you will bring me out of the grave again. And that's what Jesus did. He trusted his father to such an extent that he went to the cross to the point of death. But his obedience goes one step further. It wasn't any death. What does the rest of the verse say? Even death on the cross. This is the lowest low you can imagine. Crucifixion is shame and torture perfected. I like the way the ESV study Bible described it. It says, no other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of the person. It was the ultimate counterpoint to the divine majesty of the pre-existent Christ, and thus was the ultimate expression of Christ's obedience to the Father. This is the ultimate counterpoint of humiliation and shame. You were, if you were crucified, you were crucified naked. You did not have clothes to cover you. you were utter, it was an utter shame. You died a slow death. Some crucifixions lasted days, weeks. And even as people passed by to add injury to insult, insult to injury, mock you and spit on you. While you are dying a horrible slow death. Can you imagine a more gruesome death than that? And here's the point of all this. That's the mind of Christ. If you think of the cross, that's the attitude that he had, which must be in us. You see how radical now this, this becomes difficult because that is where we must be willing to go for one another. For as our love expressed to you and to us. We say, Father, we will follow, we will trust you, even if it costs us our lives, we will do it. Now, if he was equal with God, if he was, had all power, all authority, and he humbled himself, how much more are we to do that, who are finite human beings from the start? Okay, we, we did not have any pre-existence. We, we were a baby from the, from the start. Can we not climb off of our little throne of glory and wash the feet of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Can we not give up our privileges, our honor, our titles, our for others that they might see God and his glory and one another? But someone might ask as we consider this, but why? Why must I do that? I mean, that doesn't seem like a very wonderful life to just give up my life, give up my privileges, give up my titles, give up and serve and even die. No, thank you. Why should I do that? That leads to the second point. I believe the second aspect is meant to show us the motivation, Christ exaltation in verses 9 to 11. Let's read it together. Verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, think with me. If Jesus only died and stayed dead, and we read through the pages of Scripture, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me to death, would you follow him? No thanks. I don't want to just die. That doesn't make sense. Like, I want to live my life. I want to have something to live for, right? No thank you. But 
Jesus didn't just die. He rose again. Amen. And that glory he received was the highest glory you can imagine. And now he says, follow me. Yes, follow me by taking up your cross and the self-emptying, self-denying, self-sacrificing, giving up everything on earth with the eternal joy before you, with eternal life with me. Now, follow me. See how that changes our motivation for this self-emptying, self-denying, considering other people more significant than ourselves? And as we read scripture, this is the consistent offer of Christ. It was never follow me because follow me or follow me to death and then you die and then it's over. And no, that's never. Listen, listen to this. Um, remember, remember the words that he spoke to the rich young ruler when he asked him to offer up everything, to give up everything he has. Listen to Mark 10 verse 21. Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Do you see the order there? If you leave everything, if you follow me, what will you gain? A treasure in heaven. Leave your earthly riches for eternal riches, for true riches. Do you want to be really rich? Follow me. Give up everything you have because money cannot satisfy you. All the possessions of this earth cannot bring you lasting joy, but I can. I can and I will. You will have a treasure that will outlast all the earthly treasures you can imagine. So will you trust me? Will you follow me? Do you see how it works? So yes, he had to give up everything. And if you don't have the eyes of faith and you look at that life, Paul says, if there is no resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied. We should live a kind of life that people should feel sorry for us. Why do those people waste their money like that? Why do those people sacrifice their lives in missions and go and die in the Amazon? And why? That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense if there isn't a resurrection. <laughs> But that's the point. The world is missing out. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus tells it, tells it in a form of a parable. He says, again, the same picture. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, see the same thing? It cost him everything. He had to sell everything. But yet, what did he gain? The treasure. He... What he gained in the treasure made up everything he lost and so much more. For to live is Christ and to die is loss. <laughs> no, to die is gain. In other words, beloved, in our text, Philippians 2, we have stumbled on the treasure in the field. That should motivate the same mind to give up everything. This is the treasure that we must see by, with the eyes of faith to be able to have the mind because this was also in the mind of Christ. That future reward of Christ was in his mind when he endured the cross. That is what gave him the strength to give up everything. And we see that connection explicitly in our text between sacrificial love and God's honor and reward with the first word of verse 9. Look at verse 9, the first word. Therefore, what's the point of that? 
because Jesus gave up everything, because he humbled himself infinitely, even to the point of death, God has highly exalted him. That was his reward. God has written a, a law, a principle into his universe. And Jesus told it like this, Luke 14 verse 11. It says, for everyone, that means not just Jesus himself, but everybody, this is an eternal principle, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see? And since Jesus was the person that humbled himself infinitely, he was exalted infinitely. Above every name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. One day every knee will bow and tongue confess, either willingly or unwillingly, but they will. And we see that explicitly in Hebrews 12 verse 2. This was in the heart of Christ, in the mind of Christ, as he went to the cross. Listen to Hebrews 12 verse 2. We must look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see how clear it is? That future joy was what gave Jesus the motivation to die, to endure the most horrible death. That future joy of being with his father, with his bride, the church, forever with him on a physical heaven and a physical earth, with physical bodies forever and ever, motivate him to endure all of that. You see what a powerful motivation joy is and faith in what is coming. And that's the point. Have that mind which was in Jesus. Let that mind be in you. The mind that empties himself while we have the eyes of faith to look for the joy, the reward, the eternal, ever-increasing pleasures of God. Because we believe the words of Jesus, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So as we humble ourselves, we look to God and God, you are, you are my reward. You are my inheritance. So it's okay if I give up my honor and give up my, I don't have to reward myself for you will do that. Or on the contrary, if you are the person that will exalt yourself, cling to your titles, cling to your honor, cling to your possessions, cling to your life on this earth, you will be humbled forever in hell. So either humble yourself now or be humbled forever in hell. Choose. But humbled you will be. God will humble every person. And that's what this text is meant to teach us. So that is also the example of Christ. Not just in his humiliation, but even in his exaltation. For those who humble themselves, God will exalt. Let me close with a few applications. Just two applications. Beloved, is this not a fitting passage to close the year with every knee will bow every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord either now on earth or later before him when it is too late where do you stand in relation to jesus what you do with him now has eternal consequences later why not bow the knee now why not follow him on the road of suffering and shame and humility, looking for the joy set before you that can never be taken away from you. This famous quote from C.S. Lewis is worth repeating here. Remember, C.S. Lewis was an atheist. 
didn't believe in God, who became a Christian, and he discovered this principle of these superior promises and pleasures that's coming our way. And so we are actually just losing out by clinging to our sin and clinging to our life. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We settle for our little kingdoms and our little lives when infinite joy is offered to us by giving everything to Christ, by following him on the hard road of obedience. Listen, are you looking for something in this world that was never meant to satisfy you? God has placed eternity in our hearts and only the eternal God can fill us, can satisfy us. Are you, you perhaps like that child playing with the mud pies because you just cannot imagine the holiday? Oh, if you could only see Jesus, if you could only see his glory, if you could only understand that to have him is to have everything and so much more. And yet there is something that separates us from him, right? That's our sin. But that's why he came. That's why he went to the cross. He was born. He became a man to save his people from their sin. Are you a sinner? Then he can save you. So repent and come to Christ. Second application is perhaps you are a believer, you do know him, but you, you struggle to lay down your rights, your, your privileges, your honor in order to serve other people, the, maybe the lost, or your brothers and sisters in Christ, in church. Perhaps it's with members of your own family right? you might be struggling with. Perhaps you look in your heart and you find an unwillingness to love someone, to forgive someone, to serve someone because of some personal pain or some personal loss or perhaps it has happened just too many times the pain is just too much dear christian will you come to christ with that heavy heart is it not a burden to carry is it not a burden to carry that heaviness perhaps you are a believer but you've become so nearsighted of this little life you and you don't think of judgment day you don't think of Jesus' coming. You don't consider that great reward of humbly denying yourself, picking up your cross and following him. You don't think about what it feels, what it will feel like when Jesus will look you in the eyes and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Rest now. You are home. Enter into the joy of your master, wiping away every tear from your eye. Beloved, consider his great love for you. He forgave you of all your sins, all of it. Consider his great patience with you. Day in, day out, his mercies are new. He is patient. He is slow to anger. He never gives up on you. He promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Consider his great commitment to you. He went to the cross for you. Can you not give the same grace to others that you have received? Shall we be forgiven so much and we forgive so little? Shall God be so patient with us and we be so little patient with others? Oh, beloved, let us consider this mind of Christ. This is the true Christmas spirit. 
And let that also be in us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are often nearsighted. We do not look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Lord, we, we often don't see that joy that is waiting us, Lord. And as we consider the close of this year, the beginning of a new year, Lord, it's as if it's a symbol of the end of our lives and the beginning of eternal life with you. And we thank you that we are one year closer to you, one year closer to seeing you. Oh Lord, may we be ready. May we not waste our lives. May we not cling to our little treasures and our little kingdoms and our little achievements. And Lord, let us trade it all let us, like Paul say, count it all rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, our Lord. Lord, I pray for Heritage Baptist Church, Porch, Lord. I pray that we might become a church that will have the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ. Firstly, in loving our spouses and loving our church family, loving the people that you have placed within our immediate circles of influence and circles of love and affection, that we would truly give ourselves up for others but lord that we would also that that love would spill over to the nations that we would gladly give up our lives for the the unreached people groups of the world that we would go and be missionaries in places where no one wants to go that we were that we can die there and show them a picture of the cross of christ oh lord we commit ourselves to you and we thank you that you've loved us so much and you've loved us first we gladly return our love to you, Lord, for you are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name.